0: This week on Dig Me Out. Swallowed, swallowed. I'm with
1: i with, with your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Manichi.
2: Jay, we're back this week with a round table. And it is a specific roundtable jay well they usually are yeah we're not we're not just going to talk about stuff that's unspecific or whatever we're going to talk about uh sophomore slumps jay good i like this format yeah this is one we've done we did it back Sorry. in april with sponge we tackled their sophomore release which was called uh <laughs> w- Waxostatic, thank you I i would blank there for a second so for our second... We're, we're doing two albums this year, in case you didn't figure it out. They're, these were both albums released in 1996. When we go to 2017, we'll do two albums released in 1997. So on and so forth. Until we get back to 1990 and then we recycle the whole thing for years 30 through 35 of the podcast. Or whatever that ends up being. Anyway, we're talking about Bush. And we're going to talk about their sophomore album, Razorblade Suitcase. J... To help us do so, of course we have brought in some guests. Some gentlemen who have joined us before. They're back. They're going to help us dissect this record. Figure out whether it is worthy of being called a sophomore slump or if we can redeem its sophomore slump status. Joining us from the Sit and Spin with Joe video cast, which you can find at Facebook, which is a forward slash sit and spin with Joe, at sit and and spin with Joe. (laughs) It is tough Uh, to get your mouth around, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of S's. (laughs) There is. Joe Royland, back with us. Thanks for being back with us, Joe.
3: Thank you guys for having me back. Glad to be a part of the show. I really enjoyed the spun show you guys did earlier in the year.
2: Excellent. Also joining us, a man who is a uh, writer at Ultimate Classic Rock Magazine, as well as uh, other places like cleveland scene pop dose you can listen to him on the lost together podcast and um his name is matt wardlaw and he is joining us once again how are you matt
1: i'm doing good and if you're lucky enough like tim occasionally i'll come and stalk you in your hometown or <laughs> just the place where you live so <laughs> it's great to be here with you guys uh it's always a pleasure and and jay do you ever think that he like invites some guests for this kind of stuff just so you won't sit there and analyze his own personal sophomore slump.
4: <laughs> yes, he's very insecure. He's always he's, he's always coming up
2: with schemes. Back off. Very wise
1: to he's he's wise to deflect. But uh, I'm I'm grateful nonetheless to be a part of this. You guys, good to be back.
2: Excellent. So we're talking Bush. We're talking Razorblade Suitcase. I want to give the audience just a quick uh, refresher on this album and this band. So, Razorblade Suitcase came out November 19th, 1996. It was produced by Steve Albini. That was a big deal. At the time, we'll get into why. It was recorded at Abbey Road Studios in London, England. Now, this was the follow-up to their debut record, 16 Stone. It was released almost two years exactly earlier. It was December 6th, 1994. That was a huge, huge record for... I guess you'd say the first wave of post grunge bands. Yep. You had multiple singles that went into the billboard 200 um, or billboard modern rock 100. And and then the, this album was on the billboard 200 chart, reached number four, come down and glycerin were the two biggest singles. It also had uh, machine head, um, little things, everything Zen. These were all charting singles. So it had five singles released between January 95 and April 96. So, as I mentioned, they released in November 96 this album, which means they were still putting out singles for this for the first record while they were probably in recording the second record. And I'm sure there was a lot of touring that went on between 94 and 96 as well to support that record. So, that's just some of the information. I want to get from everybody who's joining us namely joe and matt want to know where your history is with the band so we have a a proper perspective did you buy this album when it came out were you a fan of bush before this record was this something you picked up later on where where were you at in the 90s as far as bush is concerned matt i'm gonna start with you
1: i was working in radio at the time so bush um we were still at that point, um, an alternative radio station at, uh, WMMS here in Cleveland. And Bush was certainly one of our core artists. And, um, you know, we played all of the singles from the 16 stone record a lot. Uh, I think they came and played at least a couple of shows for us in the market. And, um, they're just one of those bands that I just think back to from the time that, um, everything's in was released as one of the initial singles like they exploded pretty quickly on rock radios as a popular band and um you know looking at all of these you know five singles that you mentioned that were really in 94 and 95 i mean they were all big rock radio records and here we are like you know 21 well 22 years later whatever it is um and all those songs are still getting a lot of play on rock radio to this day like as as like quote-unquote classic tracks Mm -hmm. in the format Um, so they really really made a big impact um, with that 16 stone record um, which I think kind of helped them because certainly it firmly established them um, but I think that it also maybe hurt them a little bit because by the time razor blade suitcase came out in 1996 radio and people listening to radio had just heard so much of this band and it had been so in your face for so long that i have to think that there was definitely a little bit of um, fatigue both on the radio side and on the fan side certainly certainly if you were a fan of this band you were excited uh for that second record to come out because the first record even the stuff that didn't get played as singles like i think that overall as a whole like that first Bush album, 16 Stone, was a pretty solid record top to bottom.
2: That's a, I, I want to jump to one of our Patreon comments before I get to Joe. Yeah. Because they cover uh, a little bit of what you just said. Scott Wood over at Patreon, he said, By 96, I think Grunge was done, and now everyone was into Green Day and the like. Plus, the first album was played incessantly on radio. I worked at a shop, and we listened to the quote-unquote alternative station... Alternative Rock Station, The Buzz. I don't remember which Bush song it was, but we heard it 11 times in eight hours. We seem to have these waves of genres, and if you took too much time off, you were done. So I think what he's getting at there is they jumped from their fifth single to only a couple months later releasing their next record. So I'm guessing there was some pressure from the label. Hey, you got to follow this up. We got to get another record out as fast as possible because if you read in the notes on wikipedia this was written all the songs lyrics everything was written in a month
1: yeah yeah
2: we'll get into whether or not that was good or bad probably leaning more well, towards bad but we'll get it yeah that, that. one
1: other stat that's probably worth throwing out on 16 stone before we leave that one is i'm just looking here and like all those singles at alternative and mainstream the alternative and mainstream charts Those were all like top ten and top five charting singles. I mean that that gives you an idea of like how how deeply this was just pushed into people's skulls.
2: Joe, tell us about your history with Bush and this album. Um,
3: Well, technically, I I didn't buy any of the records, even though I owned them all, because at the time, that was my record store days and also my rock journalism days, so I got everything for free. Uh, But I did like the Bush album quite a bit when it came out. We used to sort of have a joke, though, back at the time that uh, we would call Bush's uh, 16 Stone Pearl Jam 11 And we used to call any band that sounded kind of like Nirvana or Pearl Jam, we would just name it like 11, 12, 13, or 14. So like you had bands (laughs) like Seven Mary Three was Pearl Jam 13, Creed was Pearl Jam 20 and things like that. But um, that was one of the points that I was going to make that the reader uh, pointed out too, is that there's that saying that you have years to make your first album and weeks to make your second. And I think they definitely fell a bit victim to that. And one of the other things that happened between the first and second album coming out is they were on Trauma Records, which was distributed by Interscope. And Interscope, uh, when Sixteen Stone came out, was being distributed by Warner Brothers, or like We Atlantic Electro Records, but then got bought out by Uni Distribution. So they changed the major labels that were distributing too. So there's probably a little bit of pressure on them because of that as well.
2: Hmm, Interesting. Jay, were you listening to Bush in the '90s? Well, thanks to Matt and uh,
4: his friends at WMMS, I don't think I had a choice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, bro. I mean, they played the hell out of out of them, and I was. They were a band where I'm actually kind of shocked um, when I find people who bought a band like this, bought the CD new because. I always felt like what bands that get played this much, either on MTV or uh, on radio in the day, I would always take that as a way to get the record for free. (laughs) Like, I don't, I don't need to go buy this because you know I'm going to hear all the good songs whenever I want in the next hour if I just turn the radio on. So I didn't buy this uh, record or the first record until maybe a couple years after when things kind of, you know cool down a little bit and uh, they weren't getting played as much. Uh, I picked both up used and in some ways rediscovered them um, in terms of, you know, digging into the album tracks and actually, you know, paying attention with a little more intent than uh, I don't know when, when things are getting blasted at you on the radio, I, I seem to get uh, a tendency to, to kind of recoil, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I mean uh, I, was, I was kind of a fan of the band, I guess. I mean, I, they didn't, I didn't hate them. I kind of took it for what it was. I was a huge fan of Machine Head. Um, I thought that, I still think that song is is, is pretty well done, uh, hard rock alternative song. So mm-hmm. that kind of looped me into to at least wanting to give this one a shot.
2: For the record, I'm I'm with you in terms of like I don't think I bought these records right away because we played them at the radio station in college. Um, <laughs> I was more on board with everything Zen just because I thought that the sly guitar was cool. You didn't hear that. And really, any modern rock in the or, or alternative rock in the in the '90s, like what they were doing with that song. And I think that I got this both of these records used, like at either Mad Hatters or Finders in Bowling Green for you know five or six bucks. But uh, pretty much after this record, uh, I don't think I've ever listened to anything other than a, what came on the radio because I think. They had an album after this that had a single called "The Chemicals Between Us." Yeah, that yep. was
3: two singles off that album, actually.
2: Okay, that's the only song I can think of that I know post Razorblade Suitcase. So that's my. It's just like a. It's like a cliff. It just drops right off in terms of my knowledge <laughs> of this band. So uh, I want to get to one of the other comments, which will help us get into talking about this record. This one's from uh, Keith Sawyer. He says, uh, I still can't fathom why they would hire Steve Albini for this. Nirvana's (laughs) choice of Albini for in utero made sense, even if their label eventually subverted it. They were originally a sub-pop band and wanted to reestablish those roots. Bush never had any credit in the first place. Why would they want to establish it now? Were they that completely delusional, or did they blindly decide to follow a post-Nirvana grunge game plan? Makes as much sense as the as the Gin Blossoms hiring Don Dixon or Mitch Easter to produce their next record. A little digging there at the Gin wow. Blossoms,
1: yeah. I've Jeez. Got... <laughs> wow, so much for those of us that are kind of <laughs> excited by
3: that move.
2: <laughs> yeah,
3: I've got I've got that in my notes. <laughs> is, uh, so about, let's, a bit about...
2: let's talk about that because that's really where this album, in in terms of us knowing. I remember I, I remember talking. To people and and not being as knowledgeable about music as I am now, but before the record came out, you know, you didn't we didn't have the internet like we did like we do now. So, but there was this: hey, they're working with Steve Albini, and being like, well, what does that mean exactly? Well, it's going to sound like in utero. It's going to it's going to be a harsher sounding record. So, in terms of production, comparing the first record to this record, do you think adding Albini to the mix? Is a positive or a negative in the, just the overall sound and production of this record? I'm going to start with you, Joe, this time.
3: Sound-wise, I don't think he heard it, but just the fact that they used him, I think he he did. And it's kind of like the point that the uh, the listener pointed out to Like I had the same sort of thing going like, when you're already being compared to Nirvana the last thing you want to do is go out and use one of Nirvana's producers. But I can't fault the production because the record sounds great. Sonically, the way it's mixed, everything about it sounds good. So I can't fault that. Uh, the song material is another question, but the way the record actually sounds is, you know, I can't fault that.
2: And and this was the band's choice. It wasn't that the label, from what I read, pushed it. Gavin Rostell said he was a huge fan of the records that not just injured row but other stuff that uh, he had worked on so that that's what they wanted to capture with this record so they were pushing for a harsher sound.
3: I don't even think it's harsher though. It's it, and If anything like it sounds bigger and maybe a little bit more in your face. It's not so much that it's hot To me I don't get a harsh sound out of it at all. But there yeah. are a lot of textbook 90s indie rot cliches thrown in there.
4: Yeah I, I've sort of I was reading some reviews recently and it, it it's mentioned something similar, like this has a harsher sound or they were going for a harsher sound. And I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think it just sounds better. I mean, it sounds clearer than the first record and more pronounced. And I think Albini uh, was able to use kind of the noise guitar thing that they can have a tendency to do and uh, apply it in probably the best possible way. I don't know, my take on this is that... Uh, raw steel is probably a guy who has really pretty decent music tastes and given the chance wanted to work with the producer he respected and liked um i think you know if it was me you know and i just had a huge first record and basically had a check and could pick whoever i would want to work with i would pick whoever i wanted i wouldn't say well i can't work with that person because they work with a band that i get paired to and i'd pick whoever the who the hell i wanted to work with and go work with them it's a once in a lifetime chance and so i I guess i don't i don't know it just seems like really super cynical and like overthought i don't i don't know that they put that much thought into it okay like crazy
3: it does I agree with that too, but it's still, it's kind of hard not to say, oh, you guys are trying to buy cred by using a producer like Albini. Sure. And I think that's, that's where a lot of the problem lies is that even if that wasn't the case, it's hard not to see it that way. Right.
4: And I think the quotes from Albini are pretty funny too, where he doesn't, (laughs) all this sort of like him as some like beacon of credibility or some, you know, Christ figure who blesses others. Like he's, He's very much like, yeah, you come in the studio, you you know, if I have the time and you have the money, let's make a record and I'll I'll do my best to make you sound good. Like he, he doesn't does have get a, a pretense at all. He does
3: get a great drum sound, though, given that too.
4: Yeah, the drums sound fantastic on this.
2: I guess that's what I meant by it's just in more in your face. I guess that's what I meant by the harsher. Maybe that's not the right word for
4: it. It definitely is more. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely more present. I think it can be noisier at times, but it's got a lot more air. And I think that's the part that, uh, makes it uh, sound. Yeah. Makes it sound way better. And, um, kind of any harshness that's there or even experimentation, it softens it a little bit just with, just having that that space and uh, that airiness to it, it's not it's not overly abrasive, I guess.
2: Okay, so this album, the lead single was "Swallowed." It came out about a month before the record came out. The initial sales were really good. Debuted in, uh, it sold two hundred ninety three thousand copies the first week. Debuted number one on the Billboard two hundred. It dropped off it's pretty pretty quickly it ended up selling half of what 16 stone sold in terms of charting singles nothing compares to what was what matt mentioned with regards to you know multiple singles going top five and and then five of them going top 10 after swallowed you had greedy fly was uh the next single then bone driven and cold contagious which i don't remember those being on the radio at all maybe they were but i don't don't remember any huge push for those so what do you think is it that doesn't work in terms of this being either as commercially successful or artistically successful or if there's you know was there a uh, outside factor that drove down the sales whether it was that grunge had sort of run its course and this band was overexposed thanks to those first five singles what what do you look at this record and, and what was surrounding it and think that maybe hurt the sales and the, and the, and the singles and all that sort of stuff. Matt, I'll start with you.
1: Uh, I think it might've been, it might've come down to kind of a simple thing. Like maybe they didn't necessarily start off with the right single at radio. Certainly swallowed kind of starts off in a, you know, mellow kind of dismal kind of vein as opposed to greedy fly, which I think, you know, maybe is closer to the, um, more rock and template that they had in play with like songs from the first record like everything's in little things and come down and stuff like that um the thing that i look at with like all of these singles so i think that it could have been a different picture like I, i think that you guys know that like well certainly for me as a music fan um if i hear that first single and it doesn't just hit right away in the way that like you know oh my god that is insanely awesome i have to have that whole album i think that that can kind of like put some people off from wanting to hear anything else from the record or and especially as far as sales go wanting to buy the record so I kind of wonder if Swallowed kind of hurt them a little bit in that vein and then just from the radio side of things I just remember that with all the singles um, whether it was you know Swallowed certainly Swallowed and Cold Contagious um, but all the singles from the record I feel like the record label had to push harder to get radio to play um the songs because i remember either swallowed or cold contagious but i think it was swallowed i think we were pretty resistant to put that on the radio at first and the label just kind of kept calling and said you know look we don't care if you played in the overnights you know just you know can you put it on the radio station so um Mm -hmm. i i think that that's what i saw from that side of things is they they had much more of an uphill battle like like it's interesting to like look at the i guess one two three four five singles that were released from Razorblade Suitcase and I'm looking and it's like um Swallowed was like number two and number one at alternative and mainstream and Greedy Fly was, you know, again, you know, top five. And um Cold Contagious like was um top twenty and top thirty at mainstream and alternative. And I'm just surprised to see that Cold Contagious in particular charted that high. Meanwhile, Personal Holloway, which we did play quite a bit and I remember, you know, was pretty popular with the listeners and stuff like that. It's interesting to see that that didn't chart at all so it's just like i feel like that when you look at the entire picture of this record um there's they bush employed a lot of the same tricks that they used on the first record on this second record razor blade suitcase but um i think that perhaps the pacing about uh, of how they put this stuff out to the world it didn't work as well and it's really interesting you know you guys talking about albini as the producer like there's a lot of records that he does where it's like I feel like he leaves some sort of stamp on the record, and I really don't hear any sort of stamp left behind um, by him on this record. Like I, I felt like with the first record that they, you know, had really, you know, um, done a really good job making good-sounding radio singles that had like a lot of catchy, you know, riffs and hooks, you know, guitar, vocally and otherwise. And I felt like they kind of just did more of the same with that second record. You know they they go out on the tour for that second record and it's like they they played arenas like so they had they had built like enough of a solid base with that first record that um i feel like yeah like albini you know certainly in a lot of decades whether it's now or the 90s or whatever it was like kind of the thing to do to like you know work with whoever the it guy was at the moment so it, it's almost like you could definitely see rossdale going oh i just want to you know work with albini because you know why not let's let's we, we know how to do what we do. Let's see what he could bring to the table. Um, so I think it's a really interesting record. Like, I mean, certainly I just remember that when when they put out that first single, Swallowed, um, which was just not received with open arms right away, I just was sitting there at the time going, man, this record's going to tank. So the fact that this record did do as well as it did, and they sell like over three million copies and go out and play arenas, like, I mean, it's, it's something else, because it certainly didn't look like that was going to be the case when this... Do, first released. do
4: you remember specifically some of the reasons why um i guess it would have been mms at the time didn't wasn't receptive to swallowed
1: um i think just because you kind of know what types of songs are going to work well on the radio and it's like and i think that was like maybe a time where like the stuff that just wasn't like a straight out rock tune wasn't uh-huh. react that stuff wasn't reacting as well so it's like you get like a tune that like That you hear that, and again, like, you know, even on the radio side of things, when you hadn't heard the rest of the album, and that's the first thing that shows up on a promo CD single is just that one song, and that's your first taste of the album. I think that there were a lot of folks in the building that just heard that song, and they're like, man, I don't know, you know? So, Mm. I think there was just a, folks were, I guess, skeptical or reserved, for sure.
2: In listening back to the record, I think the thing that hurts that song is it sounds lethargic. If you yeah, compare exactly. that That's to a good if you compare that to Machine Head and mm-hmm. Everything Zen and Little Things, you know, those songs all have a lot of energy to them. And this even Come Down has like a has a pulse. And this song just sounds like, you know, we've encountered this before, Jay, where we sound we get we say, you know, maybe take the singer out of the equation. It sounds like it could be any band from the mid 90s. I think the problem yeah. is with this song, is that aside from his vocal, which quite honestly is not stellar, it it doesn't. It just sounds like a four chord rock song with the loud quiet dy- dynamic that any yeah, band could pull off. Very
1: I think pixies. there was there was a lot of there was a lot of burnout like playing Glycerin on the radio. So I mean, I think that they're definitely it could have been a quick flashback when they heard Swallowed to like, oh my God, I don't know if I want to play this a thousand times as well and have to mm-hmm. sit through this a thousand times. LaGarge yeah, is a really good word to, <laughs> to, to, to sum that one up. I, I hear a lot of
3: Pixies in that tune and even a little bit of Weezer. Like mm. Undone the Sweater song. But the interesting thing is if you look at the the actual charts on this, Swallowed was number one for seven straight weeks. Yeah. <laughs> on the charts, which is like amazing. But...
4: Well, well, on the numbers, um, uh, I was gonna say as Tim was setting this record up, uh, I I I, I tend I, I'm liking to use uh, Oasis as my sort of measuring stick now. <laughs> um, <laughs> this record sold more than any Oasis record in the U.S. So this sold five million copies, and the biggest selling Oasis record in the U.S. sold four. So and what
1: was that? Definitely, maybe.
4: No, definitely maybe only sold a million here. Uh,
3: should have been the What's the Story Morning Glory. What's probably. the Story oh, sold okay. four that million copies
4: in the U.S. Yeah. So, I mean, just for perspective, I mean, that's still, I think we think of a Oasis being pretty successful band. And, you know, if this is a slump, it's a pretty good slump then. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. 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 But,
3: like, for me, like, the way I would describe this album is that there's that old saying, great at coming out of the gate, but not much for stamina. And this the, the, this album is front loaded with the three best tracks like Personal Hollowell like I remember hearing that on radio even though it didn't chart and then you yeah. got Greedy Fly and then you got Swallowed and after that the album quickly goes downhill and doesn't quite recover from it you know for me uh, when I when I first put this record on again to listen to it, it had been quite a while at first I'm thinking hey this record's not as bad as I remember it and then it was just Slog to get through listening to it, and even mm-hmm. though even though most of the songs were only around four minutes long, it felt like they were twelve minutes long. And it's just like, <laughs> when is the song going to end? Is it? Am mm. I in the next song? Is it still the same song that's playing? And the, there's just there's the melodies aren't there. There's the you know there's no mm-hmm. memorable yeah ness of the songs. And I yeah. think as opposed to that, that's what you had. That's why it went five singles deep. But you know, with this one, it's it's front loaded, and then
1: bad. It just becomes bad Nirvana after that. Oh. It's I'll like you guys, can... I'll tell you guys, too, I saw that arena tour they played for two Me and too. a half hours, and there was no need for them to play that long. It was just a very, very long show. And On
4: this tour they played for two and a half hours?
1: Yeah, it was about two and a half hours. <laughs> oh, my
3: god. I saw them and it was. Uh, I was just I was talking to Tim before the show. Um, I was thinking that I knew the Goo Goo Dolls opened for them and I was thinking Seaweed opened for them too, though. But I checked it said it was Matter Rose. I don't remember Matter Rose opening for him. But yeah, it was just like the Goo Goo Dolls pretty much stole the show that night as far as energy went. Like once Bush came on, it just was, it was the same thing. It's like when they played the hits, it was all lively. But whenever they played like the longer tracks off this album, the, the, the energy just died.
1: I don't know if you guys remember that um miller genuine draft blind date where they would fly people way to see a band well the arena show when i saw bush rook Salt opened. um it was the eight arms to hold you tour so i mean great you know great opening act um but i flew out to los angeles um as as part of the like radio station giveaway that we did for the miller genuine draft blind date and i had just seen the bush thing like maybe a week or two earlier and so we get to the club, and you don't know who the band is going to be until you know the 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 curtain comes up. Curtain comes up, and there's Veruca Salt on stage, and I'm like going, "Oh my god, that means I'm about to see Bush again."
3: So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I saw Veruca Salt, they were opening for um, the Wallflowers, of all people. Oh wow, wow,
2: that's an interesting pairing. Uh, <laughs> in terms of getting into the record and and, and the individual tracks, uh, in revisiting it, I think what is a real problem with this record besides it being front loaded it the order of the record is all over the like it doesn't make sense it just seems like they just threw a bunch of songs um mouth to me seems like it could be if it was shorter because it's like almost six minutes but it actually has something of a memorable hook that could be that could have been a single which it wasn't And then they tried to do two versions of Glycerin With Straight No Chaser and Bone Driven (laughs) And neither of them work as well I actually liked Insect Kin Just because it was so wildly different Than anything they had done In the way they structured that song and it's a cool album track. But the problem is that this is basically an album of album tracks. There mm. isn't yeah. anything that even approaches the hooks that are on that first record. And I actually I tried to figure out what it was. And I'm sure it's hindered by the fact that he wrote everything in a month. Like what Joe said, <laughs> you, got, you got years to make your debut and you got weeks to make your follow-up. If you listen to the choruses on almost every song, I think he is—he never elevates his vocal in any way. If you listen to Machine Head, it's, monotone. it's very monotone, and Machine Head and and Glycerine and Come Down—the voice he has a, a, a real energy, and his voice rises to the occasion in those choruses in every chorus on this record you'd be hard-pressed to even call it a chorus because it's so flat compared to the rest of the song um, like greedy fly is a cool song like sonically but that there's no hook to that song there's a hook to the to the music but his vocal hook is almost non-existent and I, that's the kind of the problem with this whole record is that in in my opinion is that he's he just doesn't have a hook anywhere. There's not a single, solid, memorable, hummable lyric in any of the choruses. Well,
3: that's the thing, too. Like, with Greedy Fly, you think back to the songs on the first album, and the titles are repeated throughout the songs. And Greedy Fly, kind of what you were saying, Tim, that's only mentioned once in the song.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's
3: not, you know, it's like it's not like it's a repeated chorus. It's just a it's a line in the song.
2: Yep.
4: I, I think my, my perception, too, as I listen to this record, as I... I felt like there were songs here that he probably sat down and wrote and felt pretty clear about how he wanted those to go and i i'm guessing those might be the singles uh and a couple other tunes and then there's a lot of stuff on here that sounds like just a band kind of playing and him making up stuff to sing over over top of it if that makes sense uh especially the second half of the record where it just gets meandering and you you don't know where what, you lose track of what song you're in. and It just sounds like a band in a room playing and trying to figure stuff out. And well they just so happen to record it.
3: <laughs> in, in his defense, he did say that while he was writing the songs for this record, his life was falling apart and his longtime <laughs> girlfriend of five years was leaving him. So he says, while she's packing up in run room, I'm trying to write songs for the album in the next
1: room. Mm-hmm. So, so he was like... a fun person. He was a fun person to make a record with during this time. Mm. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, that's kind of what I look at is that like he wrote all the songs or at least all the songs are credited to him on the first record. And so it's almost like if if he had like the majority rule, you know, during during that first record, then you would guess that during that second record, what he said, you know, really was the way things went. And so when you hear say that, like, there's a lot of stuff that just on here sounds like a band playing, well, you can kind of just picture that like like gavin just kind of like directing here's how it's going to go and the band just doing it
0: Mm -hmm.
2: you mentioned about him breaking up with his girlfriend at the time a little bit of trivia Did anybody know what the record is that knocked this out of the number one spot on the billboard 200 no doubt yep tragic kingdom by no doubt
1: wow foreshadowing and they and
2: that's exactly
3: that's who they went on tour with like when basically after matter rose left the bill it was it was bush and no doubt on the tour because they were on the same record they were both on trauma records on trauma being distributed by Interscope. so
4: and that's a great illustration of i think what you're saying matt in terms of you know that no doubt record sounds so different than what else was on the radio i mean it's, oh yeah it's pure sure. energy and fun so in contrast i mean this is just sleep time you know
1: yeah, there were a lot of, I mean, 1996, I mean, you know, whether it was No Doubt or Refreshments or whoever, there, there were a lot of fun bands that were, like, making stuff that, like, you know, just was different sounding than, you know, a lot of the grungy stuff that had come before, so.
3: Yeah, that's a good point, because that that was right, right around 95 was when you had that turn. All of a sudden, like, grunge was on the way out, and you started having the happier, upbeat bands. You had your... Better than Ezra's, and you're Hootie and the Blowfish, and you're no doubt. And like rock music was making a turn to being upbeat and happy again. And this was a record that was still very much, oh boo hoo. (laughs)
2: Well, it it got darker (laughs) than the first record, which exactly they went in the opposite direction of the trend of music at the time, which some people can be, you know, praised for bucking the trend. But I wonder if he had spent maybe another month writing. Or if they had worked with a different producer that said, you know, you did really well with the choruses that actually mentioned the word that you're naming the song after. Maybe you want to do that again so that people can actually remember what the hell the song's called when they want to call into the radio station and ask for it.
3: Well, it, what's interesting, too, is after this record, they for the next album, they went back to the producers of the first album, which was Clive Langer and Alan, Alan Winstanley. They, huh. they produced the first album. They went right back to them for the third album, although co-produces
1: with Gavin Rosdale. Interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I didn't know that. That's interesting.
2: And um, just to circle it back to that Pixies reference that was made earlier, the cover artwork was done by Vaughn Oliver, who if anybody is familiar with um, the 4AD la- label, he's basically the house designer. So if you've ever seen it a, shows. <laughs> a, a label or a, a, a record that for the Cocteau Twins or Dead Can Dance or any of those bands, he did this, and he also did the Pixies. So kind of makes sense that they would bring in uh, Nirvana's producer and the Pixies' uh, album designer, because that's where, it, uh, sonically, a lot of this record lies.
3: And you can't fault the Pixies. No. If you're going to try to be like somebody, why not be like the Pixies?
2: Sure. I mean... Nirvana was trying to be like the Pixies in some way. Exactly. So,
3: I mean,
2: Everybody was trying to be like the Pixies. Right. I do want to, I, I want to mention some... Uh, you mentioned... We talked about Personal Holloway for a second there. Steven, who is a previous guest of our show, and he's one of our Patreon subscribers, he said, When I heard the first two singles, I was both young and impressionable, but I thought, and still think today, those are great alternative rock songs. All signs pointed towards Razorblade Suitcase being a solid follow-up, as far as I was concerned. But then, of course, you tear into the thing and halfway through it, you find your victim of some cruel form of audio torture, another otherwise known <laughs> as Straight No Chaser, only to be <laughs> seamlessly abandoned into sheer boredom by the remaining five tracks. Even though this, Oh, God, yes. <laughs> even though this album is possibly the dictionary definition of a sophomore slump, I still enjoy six of the 13 songs. So, yeah, in my opinion, there's an EP's worth of material here, but I certainly wouldn't have opened it with Personal Holloway, which was just one of many gross oversights. <laughs> so, and I kind of agree with him. I think that's an odd, like, to me, that sounds like the second or third song on the record. It just, ha- it doesn't have the right vibe to me
0: yeah.
2: for an opening track. Does anybody else feel that way?
1: Yeah, I think, I could... I think MIDI Fly feels like yeah. it would have been a better opening track. Same here.
3: Oh, I was also going to say, Tim, too, uh, Mouth was a single, but not for this album. It was uh, a single for the next record they did, which was a remix album called Deconstructed. Oh, and I actually yeah. I actually like the remix version, which was called the Stingray Mix. I like that version far better than the version that's on this album.
2: Okay. Absolutely. I'll have yeah. to go track that down then.
3: Yeah, it was featured also on the soundtrack to An American
1: Werewolf in Paris. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that was a cool mix.
2: Let's talk about where this record stands in our sophomore slump pantheon. We mentioned earlier Sponge was redeemed. We considered that record to be unworthy of its sophomore slump status, and it's an album that people should check out. Where are we going to vote for this album, Razorblade Suitcase by Bush? Is this truly a sophomore slump, or does this deserve a second shot at people's listening uh, time, and should they go stream it on on Spotify or or pick up the used CD, which I'm sure is available for a dollar at half price mm. books throughout the country. <laughs> um, Matt, I'll start with you. Is this redeemable or not?
1: Uh, I think it's absolutely redeemable, especially if you stack it up up against. Um, congratulations, I'm sorry about the gin blossoms. <laughs> um, well, anything almost sounds is like. Um, sticky fingers by comparison (laughs) um but you 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 mentioned half price books and and you know it's funny within the past five years or so i went out and for a grand total of about two dollars i bought 16 stone and i bought razor blade suitcase because at some point both records had slipped out of my collection and um there's a lot of bands i think of that like you know hey you know you should have those first two records um you know they're kind of good solid representation of what the band was all about and I think that for Bush that certainly applies that like if you're looking for you know what are the two records that I should own like you really can't go wrong just having these these two records so I, I don't know that I place this as as bad as it you know was made out to be at the time you know and certainly I think there's a lot of bands now that would uh, be okay with um, slumping and selling three million copies
2: uh just a reminder we're 210 days away from the Half price books uh, blowout uh, <laughs> clearance sale at the Columbus Expo Center which will be uh, June of next uh, next year 2017 so uh,
1: we can you and I can carpool. definitely
2: I I have to bring large bags to carry the 50 cent or, or dollar CDs and vinyl that they uh, throw out there on their massive tables of junk so uh, I spent nice. I, think I bought 48 CDs this year uh, nice. for a dollar filling in the collection. Hey, I gotta make sure I have all of the Collective Soul CDs. I mean, I'm not; those aren't gonna. Just, uh... <laughs> I, I wish. I wish I known you
1: Back in the, I, 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 I wish I would have known you back in the day when I had the entire Collective Soul catalog that I assembled piece by piece as they <laughs> released the albums, and I got the free the free promo. Eventually, when they put out that like hits collection, I was like, I think I can say goodbye to the catalog now. So, mm. if I would have known you, I would have <laughs> said, Tim, I'll ship these on over to you
2: uh the, i would imagine could, that their hits collection is actually fairly listenable as opposed to solid. yeah i mean that's for sure yeah
1: and that's something you see too looking at bush is like you know over the course of the albums that they made and i was looking at this um uh i guess all the way up to like science science of things with chemicals between us and letting the cable sleep where the two that I remember getting radio play and all I, I remember hearing War Machine as well, but like when you look at that span of singles that they put out between nineteen ninety four and two thousand, like they put out a pretty solid stack of radio singles. So that's another one that like I've seen like the greatest hits for Bush and it's a pretty solid looking track listing. Joe. I don't
3: think you by the numbers you certainly can't call it a slump. I mean yeah it sold half as much, but as Matt made a good point. Most most artists would kill to get that kind of numbers. And even though I would consider it more of a a worthy EP than an album. It's not that terrible. I mean, there's enough good songs on the album to make it worth having. So, I can't I can't say it's an official slump, but you know, on a personal level is what I was more hoping for it to be than yes. So, I'm kind of like 30/70. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
4: <laughs> uh Jay, uh I don't think it's a slump. I think there's way we worse uh, or way better examples of a slump than than this um i think the numbers speak pretty loudly in terms of sales which uh really should define a slump right i mean the whole point you would we wouldn't have this conversation is the first record needs to have sold um and been a commercial success so um I, i think the production for me saves a lot of the boring material uh at least for for a uh, occasional listen every so often maybe every couple years or something um i just think the the sound of the record is is so strong that you know i sort of get drawn into that even though you know half the material material will put you to sleep i think albini to me saved uh save the record
2: that's that's fair all right so we've got three on the uh it's redeemable i do not agree i i th- <laughs> In listening back to this record, I was so bored after track five that I, I, an EP would be on the cusp of, for this record um, if we were rating it. And I think that swallowed is a weak, has a really weak chorus um, with some bad rhyming. To me, this is the, this is on par with that second Gin Blossoms record as far as being a, a sophomore slump. Um, oh. Yeah. So, you guys win three to one. I got to get. I, we got to need to have odd numbers because uh, if this had been a two two, we'd have a tie, and then it would have been awkward. We would have been kicking field goals to try to figure out who to who would have uh, broken the tie there. Sudden death. Yeah. Sort of I think we death.
1: probably would have just. We probably would have just said it's Bush. Let's move on. heard <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> that. Well, one thing you
3: can look for at that sale, I I would recommend uh, picking up Science of Things because that's actually one of my favorite albums by the band. Letting the the Cable Sleep is one of my favorite songs by them. Yeah, it's a good tune. As far as songs go. And uh, even Golden State, which followed that, uh, Dave Sardi produced that. That's a pretty decent record, too. Dave Sardi? Yeah. I I listen to those records more than I listen to this record by a long shot.
1: Hmm. Wow. I didn't know... I didn't. I, I didn't know Sardi produced that. That's interesting. Yeah, I think it
3: was one of the things he, the first things he did, actually, or or somewhere around there. Um, actually, he may have done Marilyn Manson first, but but uh, before he really became an in-demand producer, he was around then.
2: Hmm. Not sure. Hmm. I've never even heard that record.
3: 2001.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. All right. They what were you gonna say, Joe?
3: I was gonna say they switched labels to Atlantic for that record, but I think it was the only album they did on Atlantic. Gotcha. Because then they then they went bye bye for a while and came back on an indie label.
2: Yeah, they just put out a record this year, right? Ah, uh, two
3: years ago, Man on the Run.
2: Okay. I thought I thought there was something. Maybe they were doing some shows this year or something. I know they're still, they're yeah, they still active, right? Yeah,
3: yeah. They've been one of those like '90s tours where like a bunch of bands from the '90s play together and stuff. I think. Gotcha. You I know, could be wrong about that.
1: Tim, I don't want to put any pressure on you, but if you want to come to Cleveland and spend New Year's Day with us, we can go see Bush together. Oh! <laughs> if you want to kick off the New Year in the right way.
2: <laughs> Joe yes. and, and Matt. Jay, you right there? That, wasn't that was me. me. Sorry. Oh, okay. Sit and spin with Joe. We can find you on the interwebs at Facebook. As I mentioned, forward slash sit and spin with Joe. On the YouTube, on the Twitter, um, yep. and anything else I'm forgetting? Nope, that's it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Wardlaw, we can find you uh, on the Ultimate Classic Rock website. Yes, and uh, writing for uh, other places. What have you got up recently? It, this will be out Tuesday after the election. What would have just come out? that we
1: could read. Uh, I will have uh, uh, an interview with Mr. Peter Wolf from the Jake Giles band. That's my next, next thing. How are they and somewhere? Maybe and rock around rock the same fame. time, actually, um, J- John Anderson um, from yes, of course. Uh, yes fame. Um, so that's nice. kind of my next couple of things. But yeah, you know what? If you get a chance to see Jake Giles band, and I know that they were supposed to play Columbus and they canceled pretty recently, um, but um, they're still really, really good. One of the, I think,
2: greatest or, or most underappreciated, Rock bands of uh, the '80s, '70s, and '80s. For of, sure, people know their singles, yeah. but they have a deep catalog.
3: Back in the and day, that, they used to play here every New Year's Eve for a good five years. Are they you uh, a New Year's Eve show? Where are
1: you, Detroit? I'm. I'm in Maine. Maine, Maine, really? Yeah. Oh. Huh. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Never knew that. Yeah. Wow. I would, I would never guess that Jay Giles' band was doing New Year's Eve shows on a regular basis in Maine. Like, yeah, like, well, it's only two hours north of Boston. so. Okay. Oh, that makes sense. Okay.
4: Do they still do the uh, Repute of the Buta?
1: Do they stick? do what now? Which one?
4: <laughs> From the live record, the whole Repute of the Butish. The they stick.
1: absolutely do. Yeah, it's he, he, <laughs> he does the whole deal. It's great. Yeah, last year, I guess, I think it was last year, it was like pretty much uh, the great, you know, perfect classic rock tour um Bob Seger took uh, Jay Giles band out as his opener, and that was a pretty nice double shot. Yeah, how Good does stuff. how yeah, do you... we get
2: Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels involved with all this? I feel like they need to be part of that.
1: <laughs> and keep in mind, uh, Jay Gals band currently nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so we could uh, hopefully yeah, be uh, calling them Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, Jay Gals band, sometime nice. soon.
3: They definitely deserve to be in my book too.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. But yeah,
3: but you you know, we're, we're like where I live in, I'm in Portland, Maine. So, um, you actually see Peter Wolf every now and then in town. I actually ran into him a year or so ago in a Whole Foods of all places, literally almost ran into him. And, uh, he was doing, they called him at the last minute to do, uh, Peter and the Wolf at the, it was right around Christmas time. Oh, wow. And, uh, they called oh. him into, like, they needed somebody to do it. The person they had fell through and they called him and said, Hey, we know you've done this before. Do you want to do this? And so he's like, Yeah, I'll do it
1: he's a pretty funny dude uh you know yeah yeah he's 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 always a fun guy to talk to yep
2: excellent well gentlemen thanks for doing this with us and uh when uh, i figure out what we're going to do for 2017 our 297 records i will uh let you know and if you have suggestions of course you know you have a, a, a sophomore slump from '97 that is worthy of uh, revisiting. Uh, you can let me know because uh, cool, I'm, I'm open to that, and I, it just saved me some work of researching nice. all the sophomore albums that came out in '97. Want to remind everybody: if you want to leave a comment like our folks did at Patreon, you can join for either a dollar or two fifty. Two fifty gets you a album review or an album review, I should say. Uh, After 12 months, in addition to bonus content, uh, you can win prizes occasionally, cool stuff like uh, the Dig Me Out book or the Failure album that we gave away this year. And if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us a positive feedback over at iTunes. For Jay and Joe and Matt, I'm Tim. We're out and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
1: Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash out or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com.